This recording is a production of the Conservative Anabaptist Education Committee. This presentation was recorded at Conservative Anabaptist School Board Institute 2019, held in Montgomery, Indiana, on March 1 and 2. Good evening. Were it up to me alone what to do with the time remaining here today, I would probably get the program and write Quaker meeting instead. After all, it seems to me that we all have enough to think about, do we not? <laughs> um, maybe before we go into Quaker meeting, we could sing, My Cup is Full and Running Over. But that's not on the schedule. Had to wonder what it would look like if we'd bring all the children that all of us represent into this room here this evening. That's why we're here after all, are we not? I had to think of what uh, President Kennedy said when he was trying to bring a divided nation together during the time of the Civil Rights Movement. He said, we all cherish our children's future. That's why we're here, because we cherish our children's future. And it is a somewhat of a unique meeting here in that we have quite a, a uh, widespread of people um, all together, but it is that common interest in the good of our children that brings us together. One other thing I would say before I get into the topic directly, I would really challenge each of you here to go home from these meetings with at least at least one thing that you want to implement. <laughs> There's so much good here, and we're having such a nice time. But finally, if we don't get back, and as we uh, heard earlier today, where the boots are on the ground, and if nothing changes, well, it was an exercise in futility, intellectual ring around the rosy, if you please, and that would be tragedy. But if we can just take one thing, I think many of us are capable to take three or four things back with us and say, this is going to be different. And with the determination of a soldier and with the help of God Almighty, get it done. The kingdom of God will be a better place. I'm convinced of it. We've been hearing sound teaching today. <clears throat> the attributes of Anabaptist schools what are we talking about? Anabaptists and Anabaptist schools. I think we know full well what Anabaptists, who they were and who they are. We know about Luther, we know about Calvin, we know about Zwingli, and then we know about Grebel, and we know about Blarock, and we know about Mons. We know about those people. And you being here at Casby is giving a nod to your recognition of and your identification with and even an appreciation for that spiritual heritage and that tradition known as Anabaptists. Now, Anabaptists in the last little while, it seems to me, has become more widely used to describe what some have called the Plain Peoples or Mennonites, Mennonite Amish, and so on. I have to be real careful. I get myself all tripped up talking about this because Anabaptism today reminds me of the coffee bar at the truck stop. Look at the diversity. You can get all sorts of strengths and flavors and roasts and additives and sweeteners and powders and creamers and 
even creamers and pleasers for the lactose intolerant. You can get decaffeinated, you can get high rev, you can, and that's, that's just for starters, you know what I mean. That's the picture I was after all talking about how that overlays on anabaptism today. We didn't talk about sleeves and no sleeves and straws and double straws and lids and no lids and dome lids. It's all out there, folks. It is. And how I'm supposed to make sense of that this evening and give you something that is actually sensible, I'm not sure. But I did try. And I would like to say at this point, too, that had you tried to prepare a topic like this, I really doubt that there'd be just a tremendous amount of overlap. And perhaps you understand a little bit more why I say that in a moment, but there are, there are many places we go with a topic like this tonight. And if I didn't go where you thought I was going to go, well, you just keep on thinking about where you thought I was going to go because it's probably a valid thought. It really is. Maybe you thought we were going to go back to primitive Anabaptism, and that's kind of where I went. That's what I was wanting to go um, because this, after all, is something that we want to, by looking back, chart a course forward. So what did Anabaptist schools look like? When I was given this assignment, I didn't really know. I mean, I have not been an avid scholar of Anabaptist history, but I have studied it probably about as much as you. As a generalization, there weren't any. Did you know that? Primitive Anabaptists did not have their own schools. So maybe we will be able to sing My Cup is Full and Running Over and do the Quaker thing after all. Well, not really. Let me give you a quick overview of Anabaptist schools, that is primitive Anabaptist schooling, I should say, not schools. But the point here is that if you were looking for a train to, hooks your, to hook your boxcar to, it's not there in the way we think of schools today. So the Swiss brethren, most of them homeschooled. They had to. Look at the times in which they lived. The persecution was simply too strong for them to have schools or even own their own property. You know that situation. And uh, generally, during these times, the parents just took care of it at home. They taught them how to calculate, they taught them how to read, and that was pretty much that. Moving to the Netherlands, there the Anabaptists typically went to reform schools. And in the Netherlands, pristine Anabaptism was lost. Two, can you guess? Yeah, the Reformed. Northern Germany, there Anabaptists went to Lutheran schools. You know the story. Um, in Prussia, again, Anabaptists largely used what was available, and there they largely lost their Anabaptist identity for a different identity, an identity that served well later for the Kaisers and for Hitler's armies. That's what happened. We're getting pretty far from primitive, pristine Anabaptism or primitive Anabaptism. Mennonites in Russia, they by and large had their own schools on their colonies, and some of those did include an emphasis on higher education, often into a university level during the prosperous years there in Russia. Hutterite schools, that's a little different story. Hutterites did have and uh, did operate their own schools. In fact, they became quite renowned for very, very um, competent schools, so much so that some of the elite of the society actually sent people to the Hutterite schools for education. In Germany in 1837, there was a first um, kindergarten being founded uh, by the government. 
But for, two, for 270 years before that, the Hutterites were running a kindergarten, right? But I guess the question still remains, why are we looking to Anabaptists for attributes of schools? It's primarily for this reason, while there is no train to hook our boxcar to, there are indeed tracks. In other words, there are some principles that we can look at and we can say, well, how does that fit into Anabaptism in the 21st century? And, and there is some guidance available for us on that. Menno Simons did write some about his view of education. Um, one of the immediate takeaways that you get when you read from his writings is that most of it would have been a rebuttal to people who were saying he had a very low view of education. And he said, I don't have a low view of education. He said, I'm very much for education, so long as it fits into uh, what we would um, know as the true evangelical faith creed. You know that uh, about the part that true evangelical faith does not lie sleeping, it clothes the hungry, feeds the naked, and so on. He said, I'm for education, so long as it fits into that model. <laughs> Now let's think a little bit about how this presentation is indeed valid. The Anabaptists did revive, and they did hold to timeless principles, and they represented a, a return to the pure word of God and simple obedience to it. And in that way, they were a bridge to the early church. And the early church is kind of a bridge to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is who we're all about after all, is it not? It's why we have Christian schools, isn't it? The Anabaptist showed and lived the priorities of Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 11, I'm sorry, Revelation 12, 11, I had to think of it. It says, uh, those who are the inhabitants of heaven, they overcame by the word of their testimony. They loved not their lives unto the death and so on. How? It says he overcame them by the blood of the lamb. There it is, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Being the time of the day it is, but if I go like this, you may talk, okay? That's a deal. So for many of the Anabaptists, just going through the wicked gate in John Bunyan's uh, allegory, it required the shedding of flesh and blood, um, just the simple entrance. The posts, it seems, were set that close. The sum total of the Christian loves, uh, sorry, the sum total of the Christian life was a love for Jesus Christ. The sum total of the Christian life was the way of suffering. Why? Because of? Hello, Jesus Christ. It's that time of the day. A sacrifice, extreme sacrifice, was okay because of why? Jesus Christ. The teachings of Scripture, they trump convenience and comfort because of? Now it's coming, right. The word was, was to be obeyed. Cost, all costs, notwithstanding, because of? If it meant banishment, that was okay. You know the story of Hans Landis? He was banished, I believe, six times in his life. And every time he quoted his favorite scripture, he said, the earth is the Lord's. Put me where you wish. It's okay. At one point, he was sentenced to row in the galleys. And he was being denied home once again. And he said, the earth is the Lord's. And again, when he was uh, walking to his place of execution, when he asked how far is it yet to go, he was told he only has a little piece of earth still to walk. He replied again, 
once more with this biblical quotation, the earth is the Lord's and we should use it while God gives it to us. The earth is the Lord's. It became such a famous quote of his and such an indicative view of the Anabaptists that perhaps you know of the book that John Ruth wrote on the history of the Lancaster Conference, big book titled, The Earth is the Lord's. Why? Why? Well, for Brother Landis, it wasn't about Hans Landis. It was about? The Anabaptists weren't so much focused on legacies. They weren't so much focused in thinking of themselves in terms of a culture or certainly not in terms of a heritage. They were more focused on, yes, Jesus Christ. And today, if an Anabaptist, pristine Anabaptist, were able to walk in the back doors to this assembly, I think he would likely say, don't pedestalize us. Pedestalize Jesus Christ. That's right. Likely we have all heard the saying, we're no more spiritual than we are scriptural. Well, in terms of the topic here this evening, we could modify that to say we're no more Anabaptist than we are scriptural. That's likely true, but really it's not even the whole of the Anabaptist story. Again, our Anabaptist visitor would probably say, if we're going to take the liberty to modify this quote, well, let's get it straight. Let's get it done right. We're no more spiritual than we are altogether. Jesus Christ. There it is. So the address tonight, yes, it's about Anabaptist schools, but it's almost more about the traits of a Christ-like school. And if we, were, uh, <laughs> if we were a group of Waldensians here tonight, which I suppose they don't really exist anymore, we may be having the topic, the ways of a, of a Waldensian school. Or we could, if we were Lutheran, we could be talking about lessons learned from our Lutheran legacy of schools, <laughs> right? And that, that would be valid. The ultimate helpfulness and endurance and the validity of our efforts in our schools, no matter what our spiritual heritage, are determined solely about how well we plug into Jesus Christ and how fully we follow and obey his teachings and have his spirit. Jesus was, after all, the ultimate example of what we heard about in the devotional was, is he not the servant? Yes, the humble servant. Backing up now to the Reformation, there were indeed um, some issues there that did involve the school. And I'm reading now from, I'd like to quote, I'll tell you when I'm quoting from, an article taken from the Baptist Quarterly. It's kind of interesting to me. I like to read third party perspective history. That's what this would be. Um, the Anabaptist Quarterly had an article titled Anabaptist Theologies of Childhood and Education. You see, at the time of the Reformation, the schools were run by the state and the church conglomerate. Um, Luther had a problem with that. And Luther was actually pressing for education to be taken out of the hands of that church-state conglomerate and given to the state. And when you stop and think about it, that does sort of align with what Luther uh, stood for. Not, uh, he opposed the, the, the state church but Luther was really arguing for a dichotomy of education, that of academics, and then the moral, the ethics, the character side of it, he thought should be taken up by the church and the home. So what he was really arguing for, if I'm understanding and interpreting correctly, was what we have today in North America, a separation between church and, and, and school, uh, leaving, uh, leaving the academics to the government and 
leaving the moral instruction to the church and home. This gets a little bit tricky to discuss because there is a lot of validity in what he's saying. But I think as the evening progresses here, maybe we'll see some of the error in that. Now, quoting from uh, the, I'm sorry, the Baptist quarterly, the Reformation and destroying the authority of the church in those states whose rulers had followed Luther had thrown into disorder the whole system of education. Luther wanted a state business to serve the purposes of both the state and the church, and that would be the academic purposes of the church. And he wanted a system that was state-financed where all the children would be compelled to go. But for the Anabaptists, the war of the devil was within the very institutions of the state and church. Hence their great suspicion of church schools, church in this case meaning the Catholic or the Protestant schools. Are you still with me? Is that making sense? Um, Continuing to read, they desired the upbringing of their own children in their own home or community schools and the avoidances of all worldly wisdom. The stress was on that which is spiritual. The Anabaptists had separated from the state. Schooling was not a state affair, rather a community of faith affair. The goal was the raising of Anabaptist children to become Anabaptist adults and prepare for this life and the life hereafter with the true faith in Jesus Christ. All right, let's get into this topic proper. What are the, Anab- what are the uh, attributes of an Anabaptist school? And again, if someone else were to arrange this topic, I would, again, it would probably be as valid as what I've prepared. Well, first, Anabaptist schools labor with the, the awareness, the inspiration of um, the truth of a quote that I'm going to share here by G.K. Chesterton. Here's the quote, education is simply the soul of a society as it passes from one generation to another. Are we laboring without awareness? Education is simply the soul of a society as it passes from one generation to another. What I just read you from the Baptist Quarterly shows that Anabaptists, true Anabaptists are aware of the extreme importance of passing our soul, our very faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the next generation. And we know that if you send your children to Caesar to get educated, you're going to get little Romans in return. That's the way it works. Why? Well, because a Roman soul is getting passed on to those on the roll call there at the, at the Roman schools. We can lose our moorings in a generation or less if we fail to pass our, our, our soul's faith and our soul's Lord to those following us. Bible tells us, ponder the path of our feet. I intend to say that some more yet this evening. Ponder the path of your feet. What are we passing to the next generation? Has our vision for the Christian school, um, has it been maintained over the last four or five decades? Has our soul become rather limp, flaccid, where it has uh, grandfather's vision, has become the son's work and the grandson's nuisance? Does our vision of kingdom building include our school? Can Anabaptists continue to be a salt and a light without an Anabaptist education? If this observation of Chesterton doesn't grip our souls, if it doesn't provide both power and illumination for the work we face, I think we're complacent. I think so. Maybe we need a rekindling of the things that had been kindled. Maybe. Um, what we ought to do sometime is go to your local high school or whatever school 
at dismissal time, just park on the street and watch what comes walking out of those buildings. You'll see what the soil society looks like, right? In a very, very real way, the, uh, the catching of the Christian day schools in the, um, in the 60s and the 70s and so on, that was somewhat of a reactionary move to the negative influences of the public school. And a reactive movement is sometimes indeed necessary, but it hardly provides a sustainable objective to carry us on year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation. I believe that Anabaptist schools see their mission as providing both a painting and a painter's box. In other words, we have a history that we are respecting, we're carrying along with us. We have a living history. That's the painting. And then what we're teaching them at school is equipping them to continue to use the brush on that painting and to continue to tell the story of God's kingdom here on earth. The cause for which we labor, it's, be, it's beyond ourselves, it's beyond our time. But if the rising generation can pick up the tools where we left off and continue the painting, why then we've successfully passed our soul to the next generation. Secondly, Anabaptist schools closely related plant the kingdom vision in the heart of their youth. I'm speaking somewhat in the ideal this evening. I'm not sure that we're getting this done as effectively as we could or even effectively as we should. I didn't really say we're getting it done. I just said that this is what Anabaptist schools do. They plant the kingdom vision in the heart of their youth. Primitive Anabaptists somehow got the kingdom vision planted. Whatever school, uh, schooling they had, somehow they were getting the kingdom vision planted because the attrition rate through persecution was that severe that, well, to be ordained as a leader was basically a death warrant. In some, at least in some of the time of the primitive Anabaptists. But in no way was the vision stamped out. The blood of the martyrs was indeed the seed of the church. The Anabaptists had to be articulating the vision, passing their soul, the Lord Jesus Christ, to those following them. So Anabaptist schools plant that kingdom vision in the heart of their youth. They don't say that school is for academics not religion. Uh -uh. Nope, there's no dichotomy between moral instruction and academics. They're all part of the same package. Right. Our soul, I would like to share just a, some warnings, some observations from my um, perch, if you please. Well, my soul, uh, I'm sorry, our soul, I'm afraid, is becoming quite American and rather suburban. And I think we're seeing it in our schools. This mentality is showing up. It shows up by the posters on the walls. It shows up by the pictures that are being um, pasted on desktops, maybe not all by teachers, some by the scholars. Um, our heroes, are they the Hans Landis type or aren't they? Well, um, do you have any heroes at your school, your children have any pictures? It looks like the things that my, I'm seeing things that look like what were on the Wheaties box <laughs> when I was a boy. I see that in our schools sometimes. Is that okay? Is it okay? What about our work ethic? I think too, that also is maybe tending a bit towards suburbanism. And I think uh, another area where we need to be thinking about the kingdom vision is this thing of what happens 
especially beyond the eighth grade? Are we really using the opportunities that we have to instill a kingdom vision and a servant heart? This is maybe the second or perhaps a third time you're hearing this today. The elementary grades are called that for a reason. It's where the elements are laid. And it is true that a diligent student, and many of our schools are getting this done by the time they get through the eighth grade, many of them could pass or nearly pass what your state set for the requirements of a high school education. And we see this proven as we have students that are acing a GED test time and time again. Um, maybe just this, uh, this illustration of that. One of my sons, we homeschooled for the last, uh, for his 10th grade uh, for various reasons. He did not have a very good grasp of English. The language subject was a weakness and he was the only one in his grade, so he often got pushed behind. I was determined that he would uh, finish school with a better understanding of English. We used the seventh grade Rod and Staff uh, English book for his year at home after he went through the seventh grade Rod and Staff English book and did, did okay with it, he grasped it, he got it, he immediately went and took his GED test and aced the language, right? And I put him in seventh grade because he needed it, right? Now, where was I going with that? What I was saying is that we are getting the elementary education accomplished in grades one to eight. Now, what are we doing, what are you doing with high school is the question. I think we could be using this as a more of an opportunity to grow that servant heart. We, could we be more actively involved in creating and equipping a servant heart? You see, our American counterparts are prepping students for college and university. That's not necessarily our soul, folks. It really isn't as a whole. Um, that, that's probably the thing for Americans to be doing, I suppose. But who are we as a conservative Anabaptist people? Um, from our Christian day schools, the majority of our students have no more formal training, hardly whatsoever, until they're teaching Sunday school, until they may be ordained as a church leader, or until they're uh, actively running a business and those sort of things. Can we, should we be putting more of our soul into the preparation for Christian service in the upper grades? That servant heart. Um, how well is our Mennonite education equipping for the doing of true evangelical faith? Anabaptist schools communicate and nurture the Anabaptist vision. Thirdly, Anabaptist schools study the world and the things in the world while retaining a vitally important separation from it. They study the world and the things in the world while retaining a separation from the world. Separation and non-resistance have been called the twin pillars of Anabaptism. This point is focused more on separation. Conservative Anabaptists have developed a rather interesting stance towards education in general and towards higher education in specific. Education is seen to some as a vehicle out, a vehicle to, um, well, to accommodate apostasy. And there is somewhat of a divide between, excuse my, my, my terms here, but we'll use them for the sake of that they work. Um, there's a divide between the thought of the, the liberal Anabaptists and the conservative Anabaptists. And there's quite a continuum here. I'm not here to try to, try to uh, delineate everything this evening. 
But, but the progressives or the liberals, they, um, they have allowed education to make them worldly and non-Anabaptists. I say so kindly but yet honestly. Um, those who are the conservatives pre- trying to preserve the, li- the living dynamic of Anabaptists' thought life, well, they're trying to do something different. The liberal mindset could be described as seeing education as a means to maintain relevance in society, but there's a fear that we're going to be marginalized by society if we don't stay up to snuff. And that fear of marginalization makes them do things that make them exit Anabaptism. It's the way it looks from from, uh, my own way of thinking. The conservative, on the other hand, Yes, they also see education as a mean to, means to maintain relevance in society, but they see their relevance as a roll of salt, not pork in the barrel. There's a difference here, right? Their fear is being assimilated into society and thus losing their relevance. To try to make it more clear, I brought two books here along with me to illustrate what I'm talking about. This one is called Window on the World. This is not a book um, about a school. This is rather a book that we would call more of a social studies type of uh, content. Um, Let me just read a little bit to you off the back cover. Window on the World is your ticket to travel around the world. Find out how God is changing the lives of families everywhere, from the frozen Arctic to the hottest desert on the highest mountain in the crowded cities and so forth. Windows on the World brings alive the culture, history, and tradition of all sorts of different people. With fact files and did you know features, each section brings you information, stories, maps, easy to use prayer points, and so on that take you to homes around the world. Very, very good interactive book. It'd be a great addition to your school library, probably without hardly any editing. It's a window on the world. Bible values are augmented by this book. The view is clear, but yet it's safe and it's somewhat insulated. It's separated. I just like that title, Window on the World. Now I have another book with almost the same words, Opening a Window to the World. If you're here from Iowa, is anyone here from Iowa, Kelowna area? I think there's, some, some of you know more about this book than I do. Don't see any hands here. This is a book about the, uh, the, the high school that was opened in the Kelowna area. And perhaps you're more, this is not, this is not really a familiar book to me, um, but I got it because of the title and how it has an interesting correlation here. Do you see any difference between the title? Indeed we do, right? Perhaps you're familiar with the book, um, Passing on the Faith, the story of Lancaster Mennonite High School. It's a very similar book very similar book. Started with noble enough intentions, but something happened. By the time you get to the end of this book, these people are not where you and I want to be this evening. They lost their relevancy in society. They are the pork in the barrel and no longer the salt, if if, if you know what I mean. Right? As liberals, they chose the path of assimilation into society through the integration, and through this integration, they proclaimed them, they still proclaim themselves um, to, uh, to have moved from coverings, I quote, from coverings to basketball tournaments into a vibrant economy that can stay current with the world and yet have rock-solid principles at the core. 
Something about that makes me want to go, hmm, and go into Quaker mode. I think we ought to be. Right, we, need to, we need to stop and think. Education has taken people the wrong direction. Now, in reading this book, there are several aspects of this school that make the title Opening to, uh, Window to the World very apt. Now, remember the title of this book is Window on the World. There's a difference, folks. There's three things that become very evident in reading Opening a Window to the World. One is there were staff who left open the window or even deliberately opened the window to the world. And their action necessitates a chapter in the book titled, in this book, Cracks in the Wall. I would rather call it removing the window, enlarging the window. Because what came in as time passed, again, quoting from that book, as time passed, the level of sophistication, content, and design rose. Publicity directors with training in art and mass media brought new ideas to an emerging field. By the mid-70s, not all teachers were Mennonites. These teachers were being hired solely for their academic competence with little regard to their faith and practice. This is no longer an Anabaptist school. Second thing that becomes evident is curriculum. And again, to quote, the Bible class, for example, became quite controversial as the teacher no longer taught basic Bible truth with clarity, such as the creation story and the nature of hell. To fill the vacuum, and I would say the vacuum created by the discarding of the visible markers of Anabaptism, to fill the vacuum, many Mennonites shifted their attention and focused on ideas rather than practice. The third thing is sports. Intervarsity sports, challenges to the dress code, cheerleading, tournaments, all these things were questions that they uh, needed to deal with. Near the end of the book, there's somewhat of a self-congratulatory chapter titled Arriving at Faith, followed by a chapter titled Holding Forth the Word. But both of these chapters show how assimilation into American culture and practice was all but whole and complete. The window being open to the world, the world and the students, both were invited to commingle freely and they did. Again, the call, ponder the path of thy feet. Is the way to achieve relevance to society, is it through participation in the surrounding culture by means of cultivating cultural literacy to the extent that we are able to participate in it without any sense of discomfort? Is not the way to achieve relevancy to the world and in the world, is it not to understand the SALT principle? I think so. What is our premise for education? Is it about Jesus Christ? Is it God honoring? These are things that we need to be pondering, we need to be praying about, we need to be thinking about very seriously. True Anabaptists know well enough the answer to keep from being trodden underfoot of men because they lost their SALT. All right, another point I would suggest about Anabaptist schools is that Anabaptist schools use Anabaptist curriculum. Now, the objective at this point is not necessarily to prove myself a simpleton. You can learn that other ways. Now, I realize the context, the context of this topic does sort of give a lot of leverage to this point. And I am a rep for an Anabaptist publisher. I'm not really ashamed of that. But I can't help but notice the low-hanging fruit here. Um, and at the same time, I'm well aware of some of the deficiencies of Anabaptist curriculum. And also, I am well aware that uh, as a teacher, 
you get used to a curriculum and it fits on like an old shoe. And we ought to be sensitive to that phenomena as boards. Teachers have their likes and dislikes and, and, and with reasons that make sense to them. Some of it is whimsy, however, and some of it is far beyond whimsy. But anyway, in kindness I ask, have you given a careful look at the conservative publishers, at the Anabaptist publishers, we'll use that term, have you given a careful look in the last few decades? There's a tremendous amount of effort, and I would say also there's tremendous amount of proof of the blessing of the Lord on these efforts. And one of, the, one, of the, uh, one of those proofs, I would say, are the Anabapt, I'm sorry, are the achievement tests. And maybe you can talk to Alan Troyer if you haven't already, um, but those achievement tests give statistical proof that the Lord is blessing Anabaptists uh, curriculum providers and that they can provide competent curriculum and they are providing competent curriculum. In kindness, I would just simply ask if you're using Protestant materials, is that really defensible when viable Anabaptist material exists? Um, I know of a school where two of their young men and not necessarily bad boys, when they turned 18, they both enrolled together in the United States Army and the community was aghast. That wasn't supposed to happen. And the, the ministry of that community did the thing they should have done. They sat down, they opened themselves very humbly, said, why? Can you tell us why? And I don't know what all was said that evening, but I do know that one of the things that was said in answer to the why question is, well, um, when we realized back in school, we read about the Christianity of Andrew Jackson and such, we realize there's one, more than one way to live the Christian life. Ouch! <laughs> uh, on what worldview is your curriculum based? I had one teacher when I came there to visit as a CLE rep, he shook his head and he said, I'm glad you didn't come 10 minutes ago because he said, I just want to show you the 10 sentences that we were using to pick adjectives out of. Every one of those 10 sentences was extolling the United States Marines. And the last of the 10 sentences was somewhat of a grand finale about the nobility of the US Marines. Are you okay with that? Should Anabaptist schools be okay with that? At a school-related workshop, I was reading a portion from a well-known Christian publisher, not an Anabaptist publisher, on the general theme of Christian war. And one board member immediately woke up and he, he said, what book are you reading from? And I reset it. And he looked at his fellow board member and said, do we have that book at our school? And the other board member went, uh-huh. At that point, he reached over and squeezed his wife's knee, and she reached over and squeezed his knee, and they started giving each other the look, and I'll cease reading there. What happened? Well, he woke up to something. And he realized that day, as I discussed with him later, that the burden of argument about curriculum, choice, it does not rest with Anabaptist publishers. Ponder the path of the peak, of thy feet. Does curriculum matter? Is the ladder leaning against the right wall? Right. Do you want to know what the Baptist Quarterly, the same, the same uh, article that I've been reading to you about, uh, from, do you want to know what it says about curriculum for Christian schools? Here's what it says. Quote, it will require cohesion between curriculum content and Christian worldview. That's what they're saying about our schools. Okay. Next point, Anabaptist schools are well supported through sacrificial giving and sacrificial living. 
You see, Anabaptism was born in sacrifice. It thrives on conviction-based living. The Anabaptists were not, well, preference-based folks. Once convinced of the validity of, and the necessity of biblical principles, there was no stopping a true blue Anabaptist. None. He would die for the cause. So if we're having difficulty supporting our schools with finances or with time or with whatever it takes to keep the program healthy, the question emerges, is there not a cause? Right? We shouldn't blanch at the cost, the sacrifice, the pain. We should see it as the Lord's cause. The Lord didn't whine to others about the expense of salvation. He prayed about it, yes, but he didn't expound to others about the cost, how, how, it, how it hurt him. None of the ransom ever knew how deep were the waters crossed or how dark was the night when the Lord passed through ere he found that sheep that was lost. Shepherds, true shepherds, don't complain. I believe that couched in a floundering school and floundering funds is a floundering vision. Perhaps we need to be asking more and teaching more about who we are as Anabaptists, where we're from, where we're headed as a people, and maybe then our schools would thrive. Another thing that I think Anabaptist schools are known for, number six, by the way, I have seven. Anabaptist schools are known for love. Since this is a high school of Christians, Anabaptist's fellow man's good is his highest concern. And since the disciples of Christ possess this universally understood behavior, well then Anabaptist schools have redeeming love interwoven as part of their basic operation mandate. And it shows, it shows. It shows how we respond to the rebel when it pops up in students. It shows when the home and the school have differing perspectives of an issue. Then we see love. In Anabaptist schools, you see love when the school board doesn't always agree among themselves. We see love by how we fund our schools. I like to see the pulling together of congregations for the common good. Love shows by how we pay our teachers. Love shows when the family outside our community wants to enroll their child in our school. Love shows when we pray for each other and for our schools at midweek prayer meetings. Love shows when problems are turned into possibilities for growth and bonding. Is that happening in our Anabaptist communities? I think it can be, I think it should be, and I think it is. There is a song titled, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. I think you know about that song, but there's, there's some words there that capture my attention. In fact, they have captured more, my, my, not only my attention, they've, they've captured my life, they've captured my heart. They read like this, There since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And then we say, and shall be till I die, and shall be till I die. Redeeming love. Are our schools showcasing that redeeming love? And not for, not, not for the purpose of showcasing, no, but because our hearts have been touched and changed and moved by Jesus Christ himself and by his love. If only we would ponder the question, what would love do? And then do that rather than tussle and, yea, even divide over things that really ought not to be dividing us. Anabaptist schools ought to be places where love is felt. Um, 
this is just my own personal observations, okay? I'm, and you would have your own if you were given this assignment as well. But I, I, I'm, I'm, pl I'm putting out a plea, I'm putting out a concern. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing you to the love of Jesus Christ himself. We are no more Christian than we are the one after who we are named. And he is love, he is. Another song we sing sometimes is Fill Me Now, talking about the work of the Comforter. And as we relate to children, those who aren't here in presence, but certainly in mind, we have plenty of opportunities to do the work of a Comforter, the Holy Spirit. We sing that song, Fill Me Now. Uh, I think you, you probably know it, but it, it has, it's full of, of descriptive phrases about the work of the Holy Spirit. One of those is cleanse and comfort. Cleanse and comfort. That stood out to me one day as we were singing. And a few weeks later, we had our uh, communion and feet washing service. And I had been thinking how I want to be a cleanser and how I want to be a comforter. And since, uh, uh, as I know about the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, that's what I want to be in the life of others, especially in the lives of children in the school setting, thinking about this evening. There are many opportunities that arise to cleanse and comfort. But back to that thing that I was saying about the, uh, about the communion feet washing service. As John 13 was written, uh, uh, was being read, there were two other synonyms, and I'd like you to say them as I read John 13, 5, synonyms for cleanse and comfort. But you say what comes from the scripture, okay? Are you ready? This is familiar to us. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to what the disciples' feet? Wash the disciples' feet and to what them with the towel in which he was girded? Cleanse and comfort, wash and wipe. There you have it. When we do when we have a work to do with a student, or with a parent, or with a, for, a fellow board member, can we be as tender and as loving as we are at the basin? I speak of, of very sacred scenes. Cleanse and comfort, wash and wipe. Can you imagine participating in the feet washing ordinance without the towel? How awkward. But when, when we cleanse, when we wash, we also comfort and we also wipe. To me, sharing just on a personal note, um, observing the, the, the wiping aspect has become a meaningful thing as I participate in the feet washing ceremony. It communicates as well. It's too often, too often Anabaptist schools, when they hit problems, they don't wash and wipe, they don't cleanse and comfort. They do something called scratch and sniff, right? Well, think about it. What would that be? Well, I think we know. We simply check into the problem, and it's not in a very helpful or accepting manner, but rather it's a nosiness. It turns up a smell that we don't like, you know. And so like the Levite, we pass by on the other side. But now we have a story to tell, and it splits us. That's what it does. Perhaps worse than scratch and sniff is shake and bake. That happens too sometimes. You know, where we're just in frustration. We got a hold of each other. Take and bake. There since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. One ideal that we should hold is that each student would experience this love and this acceptance 
at our Christian schools. I think our communities will be the stronger. I think we'll have less people jumping the fence because of redeeming love and redeeming compassion that was just part of their community experience. People don't leave love. All right, and the last one is that Anabaptist schools align with principle, not people. This is somewhat of a balancing aspect to the previous point. Deeply embedded in the Anabaptist story is a concept of aligning ourselves with principle, not people. One very clear incident of this is seen in a snippet of conversation that I'm going to read to you as recorded happening between Oryx Zwingli and Simon Stumpf. Jumping in, Zwingli replied, the council, the civil authorities will decide concerning the mass. Then Simon Stumpf addressed Zwingli with these memorable words. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I feel that how well do you know the Anabaptist story? I departed from it, didn't I? Let me start over. Zwingli replied, the council will decide concerning the mass. Then Simon Stumpf addressed Zwingli with these memorable words. Master Ulrich, you don't have the right to leave the decision of this question to the council. The matter is already decided. The Spirit of God decides it. Is that how he said it? Something like that. It was clearly an appeal to Scripture. I think it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Simon Stumpf concluded his remarks by saying that if the council rendered a decision contrary to the Word of God to demand the observance of the Mass, well, then he'll deny him. And so will a bunch of others. And he wasn't alone in his bold statement. This birthed the Anabaptist movement. It was this type of thinking and exchange that got the Anabaptist tradition off the ground. And it's a kind, that kind of thinking and exchange that keeps the Anabaptist vision alive today. It is. Don't forget the previous point. Sometimes one wonders how we can get ourselves so twisted up at school. Children can become actually quite adept at throwing so much dust in the air that all the adults can do is stand around and wipe their eyes. I've seen it happen. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm supposing you have too. The incident which caused the conflict in the first place, it morphs into some sort of, you don't even know what to do anymore because the whole thing just got so complex. We need some Simon Stumps around, folks. We do. Say, here is our principle. And if we just say, well, I don't know what all that was about and hope it goes to sleep without resolution, we're no longer an Anabaptist school. The call is coming from our heritage to honor principle, not people. Far too often the assessment is based on who, not what. And that's a problem. You've heard it before today. Yes, honesty with graciousness, clarity with compassion. In conclusion, so far as Anabaptist education is concerned, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Aristotle said it this way, he said, educating the mind without educating the heart is no education at all. That resonates deeply with Anabaptism, it really does. You heard that slightly modified today earlier when it was said education that doesn't teach our students to serve is no education at all. That was said right here, do you remember that? <laughs> the public schools in America not so very long ago made some decisions that, were, that continued their anti-God trajectory. And when Bible reading and prayer went out of school, 
it had to do a lot with this idea of here is academics and here is moral instruction. We're going to separate those two and create a dichotomy. That's not Anabaptism, and neither is it a safe route for us to follow. It just is not. It is not. It is a common American concept that we have academics as one thing and religious instruction as another. The product of this nation's schools, the common high school grad, is hardly employable today anymore at the local McDonald's. And perhaps you have gotten, uh, you get the World Magazine, did you read the editorial in about October of 2018? It was titled, um, McGuffey and McDonald's. See, the McGuffey readers, while they were teaching children to read, also taught ethics. Well, because we created this dichotomy, the McGuffey readers had to go, and so they went. And so now we have people coming out of public schools that go into their stereotype McDonald's job that they're not even employable because, well, one reason has to do with the raw material. They're not able to balance a cash drawer. But the other one is, is you don't have enough ethics to, have to, to, to be trusted around a cash drawer. This is our nation today. It's not a pretty picture. I'd like to move our thoughts forward to an event that's getting closer by the day, closer by the hour. And this day matters most. It's a day that if we miss this one, we missed it all. Isaiah 26.2 says, Open ye the gates, that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. I'm not here to get into eschatology. I don't know what your prophetic leanings are, and you don't need to know what my prophetic leanings are to be able to benefit from this verse. Open ye the gates, that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. What a day, glorious day that will be. We talked, uh, yes, we talked to each other in song this evening about the brighter bliss of heaven. That's what they're going to get when they go through those gates, brethren, sisters. After toil and care is given, and toil and care shall end, the gates are going to open, and the righteous nation which kept the truth are going to enter in. Oh, Lord, I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. And would to God that the ranks of that noble army filing through the gates would be filled with the same souls that are today sitting in our classrooms of Anabaptist schools across North America. 2 Corinthians 4, 15 and 17. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not. For our light affliction worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. May God bless us all. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.